This is VOA News. I'm Michael Brown. AP Washington correspondent Sagar Magani reports on the White House confirming Russia has obtained a troubling anti-satellite weapon. The White House confirms Russia has obtained an anti-satellite weapon, but is urging calm. National Security Spokesman John Kirby specifies the weapon is not operational, and while Russia's pursuit of it is troubling. There is no immediate threat to anyone's safety. We are not talking about a weapon that can be used to attack human beings or cause physical destruction here on Earth. The White House confirmed the intelligence after a vague warning yesterday from House Intelligence Chair Mike Turner urging the administration to declassify information about a serious national security threat. Kirby says that process had already started and says Turner regrettably warned of the threat anyway. He says the White House will try to directly engage with Russia about the weapon. Sagar Magani, Washington. Officials said Russia launched new Missile attacks on Ukraine Thursday, injuring 11 people in different parts of the country. BOA's Rick Pantaleo has more. Officials in Lviv, near Ukraine's border with Poland, said three people were slightly injured there, while two schools and a kindergarten were damaged. Mirko Nazorik is the co-founder of a private school in Lviv. Fortunately, there were no children here. Even if the attack happened during the school day, the children would have been in a bomb shelter. There were no children in the school at the time of the attack, so there are no casualties. It was the second series of Russian missile attacks so far this month. Rick Pantaleo, VOA News. And for more news, we invite you to join us at our website, voanews.com. This is VOA News. The United States does not see signs of an imminent war by North Korea, despite incredibly dangerous activities in recent months and its refusal to engage in diplomatic talks with the U.S., a top U.S. official told reporters on Thursday. Earlier this week, North Korea carried out its fifth cruise missile launch of the year, which came just days ahead of a joint U.S.-Japan missile defense training exercise scheduled for next week. In Tokyo, a Japanese official issued a cautionary statement regarding North Korea's escalating capabilities. Police here in the U.S. are trying to determine who was behind the mass shooting at the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl celebration. We have more from correspondent Bruce Morton. Mayor Quentin Lucas says if the Chiefs win another Super Bowl, it might be better for a smaller event at their home stadium. This way, he believes security can be managed more easily. One person was killed and 22 people wounded when gunfire broke out shortly after the Chiefs left the stage at their victory rally on Wednesday. Security experts say large gatherings combined with the prevalence of guns can make for a deadly combination. I'm Bruce Morton. Greece has become the first Orthodox Christian country to legalize same-sex marriage. We get the details from AP correspondent Lisa Dwight. Despite opposition from church officials, a cross-party majority of 176 lawmakers in the 300-seat Greek parliament voted in favor of the same-sex civil marriage bill drafted by the prime minister's center-right government. The new law recognizes parental rights for same-sex couples but will not allow gay men to acquire biological children by using surrogate mothers in Greece, an option currently available to women who can't have children for health reasons. 
Supporters of the bill say same-sex couples will now be able to pick up their children from school, be able to travel, go to the doctor, or take children to the hospital. Same-sex civil partnerships have been allowed in Greece since 2015, but that only conferred legal guardianship to the biological parent, leaving their partners in a bureaucratic limbo. I'm Lisa Dwyer. Senegal's Constitutional Council on Thursday ruled that Parliament's unprecedented postponement of the February 25th presidential election was not in line with the Constitution, pitching the country into a new phase of electoral uncertainty. Opposition presidential candidates, lawmakers last week filed legal challenges to the bill that delayed the vote to December and extended President Macky Saul's mandate in what critics said amounted to an institutional coup. The standoff has fueled widespread unrest and raised international concerns that one of the remaining democracies in coup-hit West Africa is under threat. For more news, join us at voanews.com. I'm Michael Brown, VOA News. in the nation's history. Donald Trump will become the first former U.S. president to face a criminal trial, which a judge on Thursday set for March 25th. More on Russia's latest space-based weapon. It would be space-based, and it would be a violation of the Outer Space Treaty, to which more than 130 countries have signed up to, including Russia. And the new space race. Who will get humans back to the moon First, one, ignition, and lift off. Big news as we begin this week on a launch pad at Florida's Cape Canaveral. Today is Friday, February 16th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I'm Scott Walterman. Donald Trump will become the first former U.S. president to stand trial on criminal charges. On Thursday, a New York judge set a March 25th trial date and denied Trump's request to dismiss the case, which stems from hush money paid to a porn actress. Here's Reuters correspondent Alex Cohen with details. Donald Trump will become the first former U.S. president to face a criminal trial, which a judge on Thursday set for March 25th. The New York judge denied Trump's request to dismiss an indictment stemming from hush money paid to porn star Stormy Daniels. Ahead of Thursday's hearing, the frontrunner for the Republican presidential nomination repeated his claims that the case is politically motivated. They wouldn't have brought this except for the fact, no way, except for the fact I'm running for president and doing well. Trump has pleaded not guilty to the charges brought by Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, a Democrat. The 34-count indictment accuses Trump of falsifying business records to cover up the $130,000 payment to Stormy Daniels before the 2016 election. The payment was made by former Trump lawyer Michael Cohen to prevent Daniels from publicly speaking ahead of the 2016 election about a sexual encounter she had said she had with Trump a decade earlier. Trump has denied this occurred. Cohen pleaded guilty in 2018 to violating federal campaign finance laws. 
This will be the first of what could end up being four criminal trials Trump faces. Former federal prosecutor and McCarter and English Newark office managing partner Robert Mintz said it could be the toughest one for prosecutors to win. There's no question that from a legal perspective, this case was the worst case scenario for prosecutors to go first because it's built on a legal foundation that is largely untested. Essentially what the Manhattan DA did is it turned what is a misdemeanor business records violation into a felony by alleging that the business records were falsified in order to conceal another crime. Now the linchpin to that is that the other crime was a federal campaign law violation and that theory has never been tested by any court of appeals in the state of New York to date. Even if Trump is convicted, Mintz said it was unlikely he would serve any jail time as a first-time offender. Trump will be required to attend the trial every day and said he will have to campaign in the evenings as a likely November election matchup with Democratic President Joe Biden approaches. The judge said the trial could last five or six weeks, ending in late April or early May. Trump's lawyer told the judge during the hearing that it would not be fair for him to stand trial while running for president. The judge responded, quote, that's not a legal argument. I'll see you on March 25th. Reuters correspondent Alex Cohen. The uh, criminal trial of Trump is just the latest manifestation of what has been a sea change in the U.S. presidency. Joining us now to talk about this is Terry M. Moe, professor of political science at Stanford University, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, and author of the book Presidents, Populism, and the Crisis of Democracy. So let me start by asking you, uh, I just want to... The historic nature of what just happened, you know, that a former president of the United States, the very first one, is going to face criminal charges. Well, you know, we've had uh, um, a trajectory of presidential power in which um, uh, presidents have become increasingly powerful over time, and uh, Republican presidents in particular have, uh, uh, since Reagan, been relying on the unitary executive theory uh, to claim uh, um, really uh, uh, historically unprecedented levels of power in which they can exercise almost unconstrained um, unilateral power. And, uh, you know, with Reagan, this was just sort of beginning. Um, George W. Bush took it much further, you know, engaging in, say, the, the uh, torture of prisoners um, against congressional statute and saying he had every right to do that, you know, to violate statutes and, uh, in doing these kinds of things because he was president. Uh, but Donald Trump is just off the charts. You know, Trump aspired to be a strong man president and he had um authoritarian aspirations and those have become even more obvious uh now that he's not president and wants to uh um uh have a second term uh and so i think trump is in a league of his own um, um uh, uh, republican presidents have been moving in this direction for some time but trump has just taken it to a brand new level and I think it's not at all surprising that Trump is in uh, legal trouble because he defies the law. 
he thumbs his nose at democratic norms and procedures. Um, and uh, he's clearly violated the law in a number of different ways. And uh, now it's coming back um, uh, in the form of indictments. The other thing that I think is interesting about all of this is, you know, I grew up and you supported someone for the presidency and they didn't win and the other person won. And you still had a respect for the presidency and the person that was president. Yes. And that's gone. I mean, I saw, um, you know, if you look at social media, some of the things people say, whether they're pro-Trump or pro-Biden, you know, Democrat or Republican, what they now say about the person who, you know, and I really remember thinking this when during George W. Bush, uh-huh. the second Bush uh, presidency, uh, where the things that people would say, I mean, it started in the Clinton presidency, but it really bubbled up during the Bush presidency where people were really nasty about it. And now, you know, the things that are said about President Biden or that were said about President Trump it's it there's no regard whatsoever for the sanctity the dignity the the prestige of the office yeah well more generally i think uh the norms of democracy have broken down um and the norms of civility which are part of that have broken down um but i must say that uh you know well you know, there's certain certain circularity to it. I mean, you know, if one side is uncivil, then the other side side tends to be a little uncivil in return. You know, um, but um, this whole thing is is quite asymmetric, and so um, since the rise of populism uh, really began in the United States uh, during the 1980s and 1990s, um, there were um, uh, figures like Rush Limbaugh and Newt Gingrich who pioneered this kind of incivility and demonization of the other side as a new brand of politics. And then Fox News um, that was established in 1996. Um, and there developed a real right-wing propaganda network that's filling the airwaves with disinformation and demonization. And, and it, it really is much, much, much more prevalent on the right. And this is, is now uh, at the heart of, of their political strategy. And so in the midst of all that, politics is polarized. You know, so it's one side versus the other side. Um, and it just uh, infuses all of, all of our politics. So you're right. Um, um, you know, when the other side holds the presidency, uh, it, it's, uh, you know, half the nation uh, thinks very negatively about the presidency. And, and in the old days, it wasn't like that. It is now. It's very dangerous, I think, for democracy. Terry Mo, professor of political science at Stanford University and author of the book, Presidents, Populism, and the Crisis of Democracy. Uh, in another Trump trial, the Georgia trial, in which he's accused of 
trying to overturn the 2020 election. Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis took the witness stand Thursday, defending herself from efforts to remove her from the case. She took the stand, angrily pushing back against what she described as lies about her romantic relationship with one of the special prosecutors. We're following these other stories from around the world. Senegal's Constitutional Council on Thursday ruled that Parliament's unprecedented postponement of the February 25th presidential vote was not in line with the Constitution, pitching the country into a new phase of electoral uncertainty. Opposition, presidential candidates, and lawmakers last week filed a number of legal challenges to the bill that delayed the vote to December and extended President Mackey Saul's mandate in what critics said amounted to an institutional coup. Greece's parliament approved a bill on Thursday that allows same-sex civil marriage, a landmark victory for supporters of LGBTQ rights. The law gives same-sex couples the right to wed and adopt children. It comes after decades of campaigning by the LGBTQ community for marriage equality in the socially conservative country. A recent spike of violence in Haiti's capital, Port-au-Prince, is preventing the World Food Program from reaching hundreds of thousands of people in urgent need of supplies as conflicts between armed gangs worsen an escalating humanitarian crisis. The United Nations Food Agency on Thursday said the latest violence, which broke out in early February and has forced nearly 10,000 people to get out of their homes, just 10 days in the last 10 days has prevented the agency from reaching more than 370,000 people in most urgent need of food. More now on a story we first brought you on Thursday, a new Russian space-based weapon. After being briefed by the White House, U.S. House Speaker Mike Johnson said it was a very serious matter and needed to be addressed immediately. Let, let, me, um, let me give you an update. Uh, we just had an informative meeting of Jake Sullivan. Uh, this is a matter that we've known about for a few weeks. We requested a meeting uh, with the president. I did. We did in writing uh, in January. It's a serious matter. Some details have leaked. There's lots of conjecture. But what we're permitted to say in an unclassified setting it is that it, it is a very serious matter. It does involve Russia. It's not a matter that can involve delay. It's something we have to address seriously and on an immediate basis, and we are. This all came to light after Republican Representative Mike Turner, who is House Intelligence Committee chairperson, said publicly that he wanted the president to declassify the information so it could be discussed. He was also at the news conference. Uh, I think the uh, Department of Defense today has indicated that what we're discussing is a Russian anti-satellite uh, weapon. Uh, I do know that the administration has the, um, uh, the belief that along this way they're going to be releasing additional information about that. Uh, but in the interim, uh, I've got great faith in uh, what the administration is currently doing. The White House confirmed on Thursday it was a new space-based anti-satellite system. Israeli forces say they've raided the biggest functioning hospital in Gaza as video showed chaos, shouting, 
and gunfire in the dark corridors, which were also filled with dust and smoke. Here's Reuters correspondent Lucy Fielder. Shots ring out and chaos reigns in the smoke-filled darkened corridors of NASA Hospital in Khan Yunis as Israeli forces ordered people to evacuate the biggest functioning hospital in Gaza. On Thursday, a stream of Palestinians, some injured, some patients, and others sheltering at NASA, was on the road to the southern border city of Rafa. Hakim Baraka was a volunteer at the medical facility. Moments of last night were very difficult. The airstrikes were so intense, and they reached one of the patient's wards. Two patients were martyred. One of them is unidentified. The rocket fire was directed at him. He was split in half. We conduct precise... Israel's military called the raid precise and limited and said it was based on information that Hamas militants were hiding at and had kept hostages in the hospital and that captives' bodies could still be there. Hamas called that lies. The medical charity Medecins Sans Frontières said Israel shelled the hospital in the early hours, despite having told staff and patients they could remain. Dr. Mohammed Harara shared this video in which gunfire could be heard. Reuters verified the location and his identity. There's gunfire, there's gunfire, heads down. Gaza Health authorities said Israel had forced out displaced people and the families of medical staff, and that some 2,000 arrived in Rafah overnight, while others pushed north to Deir el-Bala. Rasmea Abu Jamus says Israeli forces detained her blind husband as they tried to leave together. I was doing kidney dialysis. They destroyed the wall on us, as well as Dr. Risk's room. They ordered us to leave and fired at us. They fired bombs and rockets on our heads from above. They demolished the building. Israel faces growing international pressure to show restraint after vowing to launch an assault on Rafah. Israeli raids on hospitals or shelling close to them and targeting of ambulances have caused particular concern. Nearly all Gazans have been forced from their homes and many displaced have sought shelter at the hospitals, hoping they'd be the safest place. The war began on October 7th when Hamas sent fighters into Israel, killing about 1,200 people, mostly civilians, and seizing more than 250 hostages, according to Israeli tallies. Israel's air and ground offensive has since devastated tiny, crowded Gaza, killing more than 28,500 people, also mostly civilian, according to health authorities in the Hamas-run Strip. Reuters correspondent Lucy Fielder. International edition continues. I'm Scott Walterman. The United States is concerned about reports of intimidation and voter suppression in Pakistan's election. The White House said on Thursday after reports of protests in some parts of the country. Here's White House National Security Spokesperson John Kirby. We're concerned uh, and we share concerns uh, about the some of the reports that we've uh, heard coming out of Pakistan in terms of intimidation, uh, voter suppression, uh, that kind of thing. And so we are, we're watching this very, very closely. Uh, uh, and as I understand it, um, votes are still being tallied, so uh, international monitors are still 
uh, taking a look at uh, at those tallies. I'm, I'm not going to get ahead of that process. Pakistan's election last week did not return a clear majority for any one party, but independent candidates backed by jailed former Prime Minister Imran Khan won 92 out of the 264 seats, making them the largest group. One of the defining events of the 1960s was the space race. The United States and the Soviet Union locked in a battle to dominate space and get to the moon. The United States landed men on the moon in 1969, flew a number of lunar missions through the early 1970s, and no one has been back since. Now, there are a number of players going into the space business, China, India, Japan, and others, not to mention the private ventures. And the two original members of the space race, the United States and Russia, both have programs to get to the moon again. And there was some action on that this week. Here's VOA's Arash Arabasadi. Ignition. And off. Big news as we begin this week on a launch pad at Florida's Cape Canaveral. As usual, it was private space flight company SpaceX doing the driving while carrying a host of NASA experiments and a very special guest. Houston, Texas-based Intuitive Machines created the Nova Sea Lunar Lander. It is set to land on the same region of the moon where NASA plans to send astronauts later this decade. No private spacecraft has ever landed on the moon. If successful, the mission would see the U.S. return to the lunar surface for the first time since NASA's Apollo program came to an end more than five decades ago. This latest attempt follows a failed landing in January by Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania-based Astrobotic Technology, where a fuel leak shortly after takeoff shattered hopes of a moon landing. We have engines start. Meanwhile, from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan, Russia successfully launched a resupply mission to the International Space Station, or ISS. The cargo spacecraft reportedly carried food and supplies to the orbiting outpost. It was from here that astronauts from Italy, Sweden, and Turkey said goodbye to their crewmates. The trio spent nearly two and a half weeks aboard the ISS, having flown there via a commercial mission by Texas-based startup Axiom Space. Before departure, Turkey's first astronaut, Alper Gezeravci, expressed gratitude for the opportunity very grateful to my uh, country on our prideful centennial. Gezeravci referencing Turkey's centennial year as a republic dating back to its establishment in 1923. Retired NASA astronaut Michael Lopez Alegria led the crew of Axiom Mission 3 aboard a SpaceX Dragon capsule as it splashed back to Earth off the coast of Florida's Daytona Beach. Gezeravci had one more stop on his adventure as he was greeted by children holding flowers in Turkey's capital, Ankara. Welcome home, Alper, and happy centennial. Arash Arabasadi, VOA News. This has been International Edition on The Voice of America. On behalf of everyone here at VOA, thank you so much for joining us. For pictures, stories, videos, and more, follow VOA News on your favorite social media platform and online at voanews.com. In Washington, I'm Scott Walterman.
Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. The United States is a proud Indo-Pacific nation and, along with its allies and partners, shares a vision of an Indo-Pacific that is free, open, connected, and prosperous. Since the Biden administration launched its Indo-Pacific strategy two years ago, significant progress has been made in advancing that vision. As National Security Communications Advisor John Kirby outlined at a recent press briefing, that advancement has occurred by revitalizing and reinvesting in regional partnerships. We've initiated AUKUS and that process is moving along on schedule to get Australia a nuclear-powered submarine capability. We've elevated the Quad, the Indo-Pacific Quad. We've upgraded our relationships with Vietnam, with Indonesia, and with ASEAN. And of course, the president hosted uh, the leaders of Japan and South Korea at Camp David and really got not only significant developments in terms of our bilateral relationship with each country, each ally, but improved opportunities to, to get a trilateral cooperation uh, in a much better place than it's ever been. The enhanced U.S. engagement with partners has yielded fruits in a variety of arenas, including the diplomatic, economic, and defense realms. For example, as the State Department noted in a statement, in the diplomatic arena, the United States has worked to advance human rights and democratic institutions around the world, pushing for accountability on human rights abuses in the PRC, the DPRK, and Burma, supporting our Philippine allies in their efforts to grow the voices upholding the international law of the sea. In the economic realm, the United States is prioritizing investments to encourage innovation, strengthen economic competitiveness, fortify supply chains, and expand economic opportunities for all in the Indo-Pacific. Foreign direct investment from the United States in the region has nearly doubled in the last decade, and companies based in the APEC region have announced almost $200 billion of investment in the U.S. since the start of the Biden administration. In the area of defense, the United States continues to deepen cooperation, support allies and partners' investments in their own capabilities, and enhance interoperability to promote regional security. The United States, the State Department declared, continues to demonstrate leadership and commitment to the Indo-Pacific, reinforcing the region's capacity and resilience to address the challenges and opportunities of the 21st century and showing we can build a better future together. That was an editorial reflecting the